welcome back to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Kendall. Today, we continue our theme of re-entry. We heard from Barbara Richards, who started Project 180 in Sarasota, Florida. And today, we have John Eldon, who started After Innocence, also a nonprofit organization. John is going to tell us about his group, which serves 48 states. We can sum up After Innocence by saying it is post-release justice for Americans who have been wrongfully convicted and sent to prison. This project is a member of the Innocence Network, a huge consortium of innocence projects all over the world and, of course, in the United States. After Innocence is based in Oakland, California. It's good to have you with us, John. Welcome. Thank you. All right. What I'd like my listeners to understand is what motivated you as a lawyer to start After Innocence? And if you would define the problem of what happens after someone who has been wrongfully incarcerated leaves prison. So not long after I started practicing law about 20 years ago, I was looking for pro bono work and was drawn, as many are, to wrongful conviction, the uh, horrifying injustice of being uh, arrested, charged, tried, convicted uh, for something that you did not do, I think resonates with um, many and certainly with me. And, and in thinking about how I might be involved as a young lawyer working in uh, corporate law right out of law school, um, I, I struggled to see a place um, until I went and saw. And when you go and see, you learn. And I went and saw and met uh, a person who was wrongfully convicted in, in California, not far from where I live, and soon discovered not only um, that uh, the vast majority of people who emerge from wrongful conviction uh, don't have any reentry support at all, um, and, and also saw that there were some um, hopeful places to put some effort. And so that's sort of how I got started. I was deeply moved by the, the, the tragedy and horror uh, that these people went through. Um, I saw it as not only something that was about them, but was about us, because um, we, they, we, we convict them in the name of the people. This is our system. These are our courts. These are our prisons. This is something that is done in our name. And once we identify a particular error, um, part of being accountable is to um, pay attention to what we learn, which we don't do, <laughs> uh, what we could learn, uh, and also to pay attention to um, how these people are treated after they get out. So that's how I started. It was about 15 years ago, I guess, um, and really saw up front by meeting some exonerees and talking to some people involved in the work, um, just how uh, these people were essentially pushed out the door and 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 the system turns its back on them. And so that's how I became interested and drawn to this. Um, the way I got started in the work was to start a small sort of informal pro bono project out of that law firm um, with the idea, hey, I'm a lawyer, maybe I can help these people with some post-release legal problems. It became obvious pretty quickly that it was the kind of thing that 
I was going to get a lot more done finding other lawyers in other places with specific skill sets to do the work than it would be if I tried to do work myself, which would be limited to where I live and and really limited to what I could competently do as a young attorney. And that really turned me on to doing this work. I met a lot of exonerees. I met a lot of people in the movement. And I saw just how much there was to do. And the projects were all um, nothing more than calling someone up and saying whether they were out of prison for a day or a year or several years, hey, do you need a lawyer's help with something? And it could be a family law problem or a tax problem or a record expungement problem, whatever it was, I would agree to try and place the case. And with a very high likelihood of doing so, um, a couple of years ago, we determined that our current placement rate is well over 90% for these kinds of cases. And it turns out that lawyers, even lawyers that I would cold call across the country and ask to take cases, um, were very interested and willing to do so. Um, and so that's how the project sort of started, I suppose. Mm -hmm. uh, and I started doing that work for, uh, in, in again, about 2004, 2005. And, um, and, and did it informally for several years, and then got involved in completely different work, left uh, corporate law. And around 2012, 13, came back to this work. And what brought me back to it was the National Registry of Exonerations had been launched. It was for the first time a careful, serious uh, place where on an ongoing basis, we could understand you know, the scope of the uh, exoneree population across the country. Um, and also the fact that those many years later, there was still no widespread effort to actually deliver serious assistance to this population. And so I started after Innocence to do something about that. Mm, that's terrific. What a great story. You mentioned to me when we spoke earlier um, before you know, the podcast, um, that this, this problem of adjustment to society continues possibly for decades. And it's more than adjustment to society. It has many, many uh, parts to it, many components, I guess I would say. Um, as someone who's been part of the Innocence Project of Florida for 11 years and on the board for six, even I was unaware of these hurdles so long after someone gets out of prison. So um, if you could enlighten us about that particular area, and I, I read an article about your, your group. I'm not sure where I read it in doing, you know, a little prep for the interview today. Um, and you ask exonerees, what is your greatest need? Is that how you approach a new client? So there are a couple of questions in, in that yeah, let me for take you a, to answer. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Let me take a step back, and this will be sure. You know, sure, that gets edited out. You know, the <laughs> article you read was was unfortunately a a, a complete misunderstanding. Um, and as oh. you know from our call the other day, um, this is a very focused, very specific project, and we try really hard to be very clear about what we do and not overpromise. So we wouldn't ask a question, "What is your greatest need?" Um, and I don't know where that came from. It certainly didn't come from my mouth. So. Okay. Let me get back. Let me take a step back and 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 talk about you know I think what the first part of your question was aimed at. So, your listeners are no doubt 
aware of wrongful conviction. And if we as a population are aware of wrongful conviction, we can ask, how do we know? And the way we know in, in individual stories and cases is typically about people who've been released. And what surprises people is that they get very little help um, when they get out. Uh, what also surprises people is that they're not all entitled to millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. What also surprises people is that um, the organizations, the wonderful, hardworking organizations across the country, my colleague organizations in the Innocence Network, uh, law clinics, independent nonprofits, uh, and then separate from that, conviction integrity units, those are all um, major contributors to exoneration in the United States, but there are many, many, many exonerees in America, more than half of them, who don't even have those organizations to turn to when it comes to post-release assistance. So what we have set up to begin with is a bunch of people getting out of prison who don't get sort of fall through the cracks and they don't get uh, services that are designed for reentry for a variety of reasons, administrative mostly, they're keyed to probation and parole. These people are not on probation and parole. Um, also, they don't, some of them get significant money eventually, but most of them do not. And third, they don't have connections to organizations. And so take those three things together, it's not going to be a surprise that you find that reentry as a thing, reacclimatizing yourself as a thing, it does not end in the first month or the first year or two years later. True enough, most of them find their way. They are uh, they find a place to live, they find some work, but if we view reentry as as becoming well adjusted and having some assistance in rebuilding their lives, the majority never got it and continued to not get it. And so one of the ways that After Innocence is very different from most reentry organizations is that we are not solely focused on the first month or year or couple of years out of prison. And it's totally understandable why our publicly funded structures do that. It makes a lot of sense to help somebody right when they get home. But the way I look at it, if we as a if we as a, a society are gonna take seriously the fact that we've dumped these exonerees out on the street for decades now without any help, and we're gonna now try and do something about it, it really is incumbent upon us to look at that population as a whole and try and serve everyone, as tall as that order may be. Because otherwise we're turning our backs on the people who got out five years ago or 10 years ago or even 20 years ago and saying, well, you know, I guess, tough for you, you got out too early, or to make the mistaken assumption that since you got out that long ago, you must not need our help. The, the opposite is true. We find that there is almost no difference in the likelihood that someone needs help from us in the specific areas we work in has does not correlate to how long they've been out of prison. And so, nor does it correlate, frankly, to how much money they're now making or whether they got uh, you know, a, a, a civil recovery in connection with their wrongful conviction. Uh, very clear immediately in doing this work that it would be useful to a great number of them and a wonderful resource to provide. And so the, the business is really, how do we get a, a limited set of very skilled, very serious assistants to as many of them as possible, as quickly as possible, irrespective of whether they've been out of prison for a day or decades. And that is the project. I see. Oh, that that's a great summary of you know your mission, so to speak. Your reach is huge. 
several hundred exonerees across 48 states. How can you help so many and how do you help so many? So if the goal is the question or the challenge of this project is to say, what can we do that is serious and rigorous and helpful and that we can maintain for a huge number of people? This is the way that I and this organization have answered this question. So I would say, for as an example for your listeners, if Harriet you had just been released from prison, or if I had tracked you down and found you as having been released from prison after wrongful conviction five, 10, 15, or 20 years ago, the, the call would be different, uh, not by very much. I mean, the, the, if you'd been released very recently, we'd be talking about initial things like getting you set up with photo ID uh, in, this, in this moment, uh, stimulus payments and other kinds of things. Um, a little more heavily on the administrative first steps. But let's say you've been out for a while and I'd call you up and I'd say, this is what we do. We are a nonprofit, everything we do is free and we are here to support uh, people who've been wrongfully convicted anywhere in this country. And the way we do that is by offering a, a, a limited but very serious set of offerings. And they generally fall into three areas. And the first one is healthcare and the second is legal services, and the third is social service connections. And so why those three things? Because those are three things that we are, have a lot of expertise in and that we know we can do ourselves start to finish, not send you off to another organization somewhere in the country that we don't know much about and can't vouch for, not send you off to some website and assume that because we gave you information, we gave you help. So we're really focused on an intervention that offers a lot of very intensive work with you in a few key areas. So what does that actually look like? Well, we'd start with healthcare and we would make sure hearing about your situation that you are getting the healthcare you're eligible for. And that means it, it could be anything from you're getting the Medicaid in, that you're eligible for, or you are, uh, you have access to a policy through the Obamacare marketplace for people who have to buy healthcare on their own, or you're uh, Medicare aged and it's, you know, you're enrolled properly. Once we determine eligibility and enrollment, and hopefully at a time of year where we can do something about that, um, we focus on problem solving and utilization. So we're your helpline. You call up and we will help you with a bill you don't understand, a provider you can't find. We are aiming to provide the kind of concierge uh, healthcare assistance that uh, the very wealthy have in this country. And why not? That's what these people need. We know that because we've offered it and they've taken us up on it over and over and over again. And we get people through the roadblocks to see doctors, through the roadblocks to get subsidized policies they otherwise weren't getting, uh, and on and on and on. And so that's healthcare. Um, the other thing we're starting to do is some affirmative work in that area, which means we'll call you up, Harriet, and we'll say, listen, we've managed to arrange for free dental services for exonerees in your area of the country through a special project that we've coordinated with a, with a providing partner. Would you like to participate in that? Can we help you do that? And if you say yes, then we're thrilled to do that. And you would become one of what has already been 137 exonerees across 22 states that have gotten nearly half a million dollars of work for free out of that project. So that doesn't mean that we can do dental service for everybody. That doesn't mean that we provide dental services or that we can do it any time of year. It means that when we have a unique opportunity like this particular project, which we can run once a year, we would reach out to you and include you. Another example of it is we have begun this year the largest intervention 
on mental health that's ever been, I think, even thought of with this in a serious way with this population. We're working in four pilot states. We are we have a, a, a team member who is doing a serious evaluation of these folks uh, who are willingly participating in this uh, pilot project. We're identifying, screening them for serious mental health symptoms, and then we are getting them to treatment and checking back in to make sure it's working and finding out later what we need to do if it's not. In addition to using the healthcare that they have to do this, uh, we've also secured some grant funds to uh, pay practitioners to treat them directly. And we're very excited about this project, too early to tell what the results are, but we're really making a run at trying to address one of the major long-term unaddressed problems of this population. So that's healthcare. So what I didn't say was that we're selling you anything because we're not. We're also not treating you. We're not providing healthcare, but we are trying to be the uh, advocate for you and the agent of change that gets you at a minimum to make use of what's available locally. And that's what we're very, very good at. So that's one area. The second area I said is legal services. And this goes back to what I was mentioning earlier. Harriet, if you need a lawyer for anything, call us up, tell us what the problem is. And if we can identify a case for a lawyer to work on, we will find you a lawyer. If you remain low income, that lawyer will be free. We can't guarantee it, but we've got a better than 90% placement rate uh, for these kinds of cases, be they family law matters or tax law matters or whatever it may be. And we will not just toss you a number. We will stay engaged, make sure that you show up for the lawyer and the lawyer shows up for you. And that has resulted in dozens and dozens of representations over the last five years that have gotten some very, very good results for the clients. Um, and so that's the legal part. The third part is... I mentioned social service connections. We wanna see Harriet taking it aware of and taking advantage of the social services in her community. And to do that, we will inform ourselves about what Harriet needs, find out what is available in the community and try and get you to their door. Now, those aren't our services. That's not, we can't you know, sort of force them to be all they say they, they are, we hope they are, but we can certainly work hard to get the most out of what is available locally for you. And so that's the offering. And that is something that we can stand behind, have stood behind. We can make now to more than 800 people released after wrongful conviction across 48 states. I mean, it's a couple states we don't have anybody and then people move, but we're, we're basically nationwide coverage. And we do this, of course, entirely by phone, because the only way you can reach the exoneree population, if you're trying to really work with a lot of them, is by phone. So we don't fly around the country and we don't have offices everywhere because that would slow down the work and, and also it would become a lot more expensive. So what we focus on is an entirely remote phone-based system. And one of the things I'm most proud of is if I had told you I was going to do all of this five years ago before I started, I think you or any of your listeners would legitimately have said, you know what, how could you possibly get this done with all of this scam calling and mm. all of this trust of what goes on and people trying to you know, take advantage of folks? Uh, how can you possibly expect to develop relationships with these folks and, um, and, have, them, and have this whole thing you just described work? And one of the things I'm proudest of is, well, well, I just did it. 
and and now with my colleagues, we go out every day. We're on the phone with exonerees. We're talking with them. It isn't always as good as it might be. Sometimes we mess up, but the vast, vast majority of the times, we are able to build consistent, serious relationships that let us do great work for these clients, and they and they get it. Once we so, show them that we're going to show up for them and we're going to fight for them, uh, every bit as hard as our colleagues on, in the innocence organizations um, fight for their clients to get out, uh, we fight for them after they're out. And so um, we have a vast, vast opportunity to add to this work and to do more of it and to expand the mental health initiative nationwide and to do more work in other areas. And, and I have no doubt we're going to do it because um, the results so far are frankly uh, amazing <laughs> and, um, and, and definitely worth deepening and spreading to others. Wonderful. Sounds very, very comprehensive. Now we are I want to a little bit short. Yeah, we're short on time, but I want to interrupt you. It, yes. it, it really isn't comprehensive okay. because comprehensive is is one of the words that I'm I'm very, very careful not to use. Okay. So and, and, and that's really important because it's very easy to fall into the idea mm -hmm. that that means we must do, as that other article you mentioned mm -hmm. um, suggests, that we call people up and say, what's your greatest need? And then we go to do that. Nice. Let me tell you, many of the needs of this population remain unmet, including by our organization, because we have not yet found a way, for example, to do really effective and serious work on getting people jobs right? Because that doesn't end with a few phone calls. And it's very tricky to stay on. And it takes a lot more time than we have the resource to do. So this is not comprehensive work, except to the extent that it's within the domains of healthcare enrollment and utilization. Sure, then that's comprehensive. And within legal services, to the extent that you can call for any kind of legal problem, yes. But when one of the things that's so difficult in the reentry world is that so many organizations promise to do vaguely so much. And very often, you got a lot of, of clients out there who are left with so little. And so we try and under-promise and over-deliver in those particular areas um, rather than uh, say that what we're doing is comprehensive. Okay. I'm glad you straightened me out on that. All right, so as I started to say, we are um, short on time, but we would like you, John, to come back and uh, tell us more about the things that you have done and also um, possibly talk about individual cases, uh, not necessarily mentioning names if you you know don't want to do that, but to tell us um, of your specific uh, impact um, with with people that you have have helped um, over the, the five years that your project has been, uh, you know, going on. Um, and I, I just wanted to mention that um, the, the compensation issue, I, I'd like you to tell us a little bit more about that, because I, I think that's very important to straighten out people's um, misconception that some of these people get uh, a get a great deal of money and, you know, they should, they should, be uh, 
doing just fine with all that money. And that is not the case. So I'd like to pick up uh, some of those thoughts next time when we, we meet again. So are you willing to come back for another interview with me? Of course. All right. Wonderful. All right. So uh, we're going to wrap things up for today and we're going to pick up our, our theme of re-entry next time. I hope our listeners have learned a great deal so far and there's more to learn. So stay with us and uh, come back and listen again next time on Pursuing Justice. And thank you, John, for being with us today. Mm-hmm.